Our sermon today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 33, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of God. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram, and he camped before the city. And from there, the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it E-L-O Israel. This is the word of God. Thank you, Charlie. Friends, let's pray before we enter into our um, study of the word of God. Father, there's a lot packed in in this passage, and I pray that um, you would help our minds and you would be kind to our hearts that we may comprehend what is in this word of yours, not only um, emotionally, but also cognitively, that we may understand it and it affects our whole being. And see behind all this a transcendent, sovereign, gracious God who is fully committed to his people. And as we see you, Father, I beg you that your spirit leads us to the cross and that your spirit, by doing so, encouraging us to live out our lives as we are called to do, distinctively from the world, as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, friends, this is our last sermon in the life of Jacob. Uh, there is more to Jacob's life, but we got to end it somewhere. And there's going to be so much more, if we, uh, too, a little too much if we continue. So this will be the last uh, sermon on Jacob's life. I think I might have packed in a little bit too much on this one. I'm not sure, uh, but I hope we can all follow along. So I want to encourage you uh, uh, to kind of roll our sleeves up and, and, and get deep into this passage. And it's been a both unbelievably challenging and encouraging 
for me to see Jacob's life and see all that God is doing and I hope uh, in him, and I hope that's also been the case for you. Now, I know I keep repeating the background of, of uh, Jacob's whole life in every passage that I preach because I think it's worth it. I think it's important. If, you don't, if we don't really know the background of the story, we're not really going to grasp what's going on. We're only going to hover over the text without really digging deep into it. So by way of reminder, let me just repeat one more time the context of Jacob's story up to now. All right, it's going to be a lot of information because we need this to understand it, so, so stick with me. Jacob's story begins by God making a promise to Abraham. Abraham is Jacob's grandfather in Genesis 12. God told Abraham that God's going to make him a father of a great nation. In other words, Abraham's kids and grandkids and great-great-grandkids, they're going to be so many that they're going to become a great nation. Now, Back then, becoming a huge tribe like this represented a lot of things. It represented manpower for gathering food, represented soldiers uh, for protection, perhaps even the ability to settle down and build a village, or if you get big enough, having the security of a city wall around you. This promise was a promise of future peace and security and prosperity and shalom. This is a promise that is much coveted, yet Abraham died before he's able to see this promise become a reality. So he passed down this promise to Isaac, his son, and Isaac, in turn, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau, the older brother, Jacob, the younger brother. Now, Isaac, we see, wanted to give this blessing to Esau, the older brother. He wanted to make Esau the father of this great nation that's going to continue this promise. But Jacob wanted the blessing, So what did he do? He manipulated his father Isaac, who who was old and blind at the time. He pretended to be Esau by putting on Esau's clothes. He took the blessing that Isaac was originally going to bless Esau with, and Jacob ended up being the one coronated as a child to become the father of this great nation. So so instead of Esau, Jacob's kids now will be the, the one that will receive this future peace and blessing and prosperity. God should have not allow this behavior. God should have put his wrath upon Jacob right then and there, right? Punish him. But yet, we see by grace, God allowed this lying thief to continue and be the recipient of this promise. Esau, Jacob's older brother, got very angry. We see him wanted to kill Jacob. So Jacob ran away, ended up marrying two women while he was away, Rachel and Leah. Now, here again, when Jacob was dealing with Rachel and Leah, we see Jacob's sin come out again. Not only is he a lying thief and a coward who ran away after he stole what was meant for his older brother, we see him as a lustful man. This will be very important later as we dig into the story. During his pursuit of these two women, Jacob selfishly favored pretty Rachel and shamed Leah, who he thought was less attractive as if the value of woman is found in their mere physical attractiveness. But still, God was gracious to this lying, thieving, lustful coward. Allowed him, through Rachel and Leah, to have a total of 13 children, the children who will eventually become the seeds of this great nation that God promised Jacob. Now, Jacob, in our passage today, is on his way back home from this place where he met Rachel and Leah, from this place he ran away to. Because in Genesis chapter 31, God told Jacob to go back to his home country. There I will make you the father of this great nation. Trust me. Pick up all your stuff by faith. Trust my word. Go to 
your home country. This is where I will fulfill this promise. So now Jacob, trusting in God's word, pursuing God's promise, he uprooted his whole estate, risked everything, and by faith, followed God's command to go back home. Now on his way back, you're still with me? On his way back in Genesis chapter 32, his older brother, remember Esau, who he stole this blessing from, who he ran away from 20 years ago, who wanted to kill Jacob back then, found out Jacob was going home. This is all important later. And Jacob was terrified because Esau is approaching him with his whole army. He was scared, but yet God, in his grace, again encouraged him, keep going. How does God encourage Jacob to keep going? This is funny, but it's important. God encouraged Jacob to keep going and face Esau and his whole army and trust in his promise to keep going by dislocating Jacob's hip. Why did God do that? To tell Jacob, look, it doesn't matter how big his army is. It doesn't matter how strong your body is. I made this promise to you, and it is by my power it'll be fulfilled. Why are you scared of 400 men? Why are you scared of your physical weakness? Did you make this promise happen? Was it you that gave yourself this promise? No, I, the sovereign, powerful God, it is me. So I'm going to break your hip that you trust in me and my power alone. So now we arrive in our passage today. Jacob is limping. He's moving toward a whole army that is attacking him, obedient to the word of God, having faith that God will deliver him, trusting that he will fulfill his promise. Friends, this is what the Christian walk is all about. This is who we are. We're a people limping together in obedience to God's word, distinct from the rest of the world towards God's promise and his future kingdom. But as you may have experienced, I definitely have experienced, it is a hard journey. And a lot of times we get off this path of God's word and God's promise and we instead follow the world and our own inclinations. Well, let's hear what God has to say in his word today to encourage us, his people, to move forward courageously under his word and his promise. Point number one, persistent sins that make God's people look like the world. Point number two, a heart change that make God's people distinct from the world. And point number three, a promise that gives God's people courage in this broken world. Persistent sins that make God's people look like the world, a heart change that make God's people distinct from the world, and a promise that gives God's people courage in this broken world. Point number one, persistent sins that make God's people look like the world. So our passage begins with a tension, right? Verse one, Esau's army is approaching Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. Now, yes, Jacob, in his past life, he was a liar and a coward and a carnal, lustful man, but he's grown through the years, has he not? Thanks to God's persistent grace and mercy, he's, he's matured in his faith in God. For example, he's faced with Esau's army here, but he didn't try to manipulate or lie himself out of it, which is what he did 20 years ago. He was faced by Esau's wrath and army here, but he didn't run away and abandon God's will like he did in the past 20 years ago. You see, there's growth. We see him continuing in obedience to God's will for him uh, back home to where God will fulfill his promise, even when his life is at stake. But look closely. 
Despite all this growth that we see in Jacob's life, at the same time, Jacob is still struggling with certain old sins that just don't seem to go away. Where do we see that? Look again at the end of verse 1, going to verse 2. As Esau, picture in her head, as Esau and his army approached, he, Jacob, divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. Look at the order. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, second, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Notice, who did Jacob put up in the front line? The servants. Then who was second in line? Leah, the wife that he found less attractive and her children. And then who was protected at the very back? Who did Jacob give most time to run away in case Esau's army attacked them? Rachel, the wife that he finds more physically attractive, and her son Joseph, making the rest of the family as a mere shield for them in case things go wrong. Friends, this is favoritism at its worst. Jacob's favoritism over Rachel in Genesis 29 is clearly described as something carnal and worldly and lustful, merely measures uh, both people, both uh, women, based on their looks. He's still struggling with it here. When danger comes, what is the author trying to point out? This tension. That in one hand, we see obvious growth in Jacob's life. But on the other hand, we see pretty huge sins still remain. He didn't run away or lie like he did in the past. That's growth. In verse 3, you see him bowing down to Esau seven times, showing humility and repentance. That's growth. But at the same time, you see a gross favoritism and old sins in his life that pop back up. It remains in him. And is this not true for us? God's people today, we look back at our lives and we compared ourselves now to when we first received Christ as Lord and Savior and we see a lot of growth. But then, do you not find in yourself one or two sins, old habits, that just seem to never go away? No matter how many times we lose our temper and promise ourselves this will be the last time, it happens again. No matter how many bad dating decisions we've made and promised ourselves this boy will be the last one, it happens again. No matter how often we use the internet to take us to places we shouldn't go, and every time we convince ourselves it will not happen again, it does. Do not some old sins seem to cling so tightly despite our obvious growth and maturity in other areas. They just won't go away. You know, St. Augustine one of the most influential church fathers in the third and fourth centuries, I mean, if not the most influential church father, he struggled with sexual sin almost his whole life. He wrote in his book called Confessions, this is what he said, and I quote, my impulses obscured my heart so that it could not see the difference between love's serenity and lust's darkness. He was mixed up into it. Without getting into any details, he was so entrenched in this sin before he received Christ. For 15 years, he even got into the habit of paying for it, starting at the meager age of 17. Yes, after receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, he slowly found victory over it. But at that point, it's already destroyed his senses in such a way that it affected him for the rest of his life. 
He struggled with it till he died. Martin Luther, the father, one of the fathers of the Reformation in the 15 and 1600s, he, he risked his life for the gospel. He, he said to the papacy, papacy um, you're saved by Christ and grace alone. You're not saved by all these rituals that you do. It's by grace alone. And, and the, the papacy said, if you don't take that back, I'm going to kill you. And he said, I stand my ground right here. Kill me if you must. Grace and grace alone. You know, he was a terrible racist. <laughs> he hated the Jews with an ungodly racism. It was terrible. It was bad. Some of the things he wrote, it was terrible. The Apostle Paul himself writes at the end of Romans 7, 21 and 24, verses 21 and 24, so I find it to be a law that when I went, I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Listen to the struggle here. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Friends, we find this to be true, don't we? The clause of certain sins has dug itself so deeply in our hearts, has it not? And it doesn't take the stress of an approaching army to cause these old sins to poke its head back out. All it takes for us, perhaps, is a stress of a long day at work that make us feel like impatience toward our family at the end of the day is justifiable. All it takes is the boredom of night to cause our hearts to think that it's all right to expose our eyes to certain things that it shouldn't be exposed to. All it takes is seeing the accomplishments of a fellow colleague to reveal the sins of envy and jealousy that's so deep in our hearts that's turned in the past even the closest of friends into the worst of foes. All it takes is a thoughtless word or act from our spouse to trigger in us a kind of temper that can seem to subdue the devil himself. Does it not? It doesn't take an army to reveal these entangled sins that just don't go away. And you, you know, when, when you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, ask yourself, what actually changes? If you hated broccoli before Christ, you're probably going to still hate broccoli after you receive Christ. Yes, we've been brought from deadness to life. A lot of things change. Yes, we're now made from enemies of God to worshipers of God. Yes, we were once guilty and now we're innocent in our status. We're dead, now we're alive. But who we are as a person, our personality, our preferences, our biological makeup, our wounds, our habits, a lot of them don't just magically disappear and change, do they? Take this for example. If you're a Christian and you drank and drove, I'm sorry, before you're a Christian, you drank and drove, and you crashed into a pole and you lost your arm. And then the following year, someone shares a gospel with you. You come to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, and your status before God has changed from, from guilty to innocent, and you're now alive, you're now a worshiper of God, and you realize that Jesus Christ has paid for the eternal consequences of my sin in full, and then you take a look at your arm, and it hasn't grown back. And you say, I thought I was forgiven. Why is my arm not back? Yes, you're forgiven. Eternally, objectively, legally, you're innocent before God's court of law, but you still now on earth bear the earthly and physical consequences of sin. I know Christians um, who were alcoholics 
before they're Christians. They've abused alcohol so much to where it's actually changed their brain synapses and their chemistry in such a way that for a while, even after they became a Christian, they struggled with it. One of them died of wet brain. Wet brain is when you drink so much, your brain drowns in alcohol. You might think he's not a Christian, but then you read this person's writing, Brendan Manning, you read his writings, He knows the gospel. He knows Jesus, but he struggled with it his whole life. I know a Christian girl. You don't know them. There's no one here in Indonesia that you know. And she speaks of her story now, so I'm comfortable sharing it. She struggles with body image issues. That's led her to over-dieting and bulimia. Bulimia is when you um, excrete after you eat to keep a certain body weight. She struggled with it for so long. She became a Christian. She knows that her value is not found in her physical appeal, but she struggles with it, and it took her a long time to get over it. I'm not saying it's okay to sin. I'm not saying, oh, old habits die slow, so there's no rush. No, of course not. New Testament calls us that we must put off the old self, put on the new self. I'm not saying don't do that. All I'm saying is that some old self things Remain, don't they? And think about it. If the New Testament authors are commanding us to put off the old self, they're assuming a lot of it is still on us. That it's hard to shake it off. It'd make no sense to tell someone to take off something that's not there. Christians still struggle with sins and old habits. Scripture testified to it. Paul speaks of it. St. Augustine experienced it. Martin Luther was plagued by it. And I know you and I are also today. Now, this passage, in a way, I think, is supposed to comfort us. You see, some of us here won't let go of the guilt. We see our sin. We see just how much hold it has over our lives. And it beats us down so much that we put upon ourselves curses that God has lifted up on the cross. To you, God is saying, look at Jacob. Look at how far I've brought him. He's still struggling with sins right now. Look how far I've brought him. I'm still with him. And child, I'm still with you today too. Be comforted. But at the same time, I think this passage should disrupt us who are too comfortable. If God, by casting our eyes onto Jacob in verses 1 to 3, is comforting his people in the midst of our entangling sins, God here is casting our eyes onto Esau in verses 4 to 11, where he's disrupting us and encouraging us to continue to disentangle from these very sins that seem to cling on. How so? Point number two, a heart change that make God's people distinct from the world. Let's continue in our passage today. Okay, there's going to be a lot of stuff in it, so stick with me. We see here Jacob finally meeting Esau, and we see this interaction between these two people, and both of them showed love and care and forgiveness and a desire for reconciliation I mean, this is surprising. You got to give it to Esau. If your brother stole something from you and ran away and doesn't contact you for 20 years and you see him, you're not going to run, embrace, fall on his neck and kiss him like Esau did. You got to give it to him. He, He truly forgave Jacob. He was weeping as he was reconciled with his long-lost brother. Friends, this is grace, love, and mercy, sincere forgiveness from Esau. And look at Jacob. He showed virtues, uh, good virtues as well. Look at verse 8. 
after Esau asked what all these gifts are for, he said, it is to find favor in the sight of my Lord. He wanted Esau's forgiveness, even called him his Lord. You call your brother's Lord? (laughs) No, this is repentance. This is humility. This is courage. This is love, affection. Both parties, they didn't stop there. Esau showed even more humility. He rejected Jacob's gifts in verse 9. I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob, wanting to show just how repentant he is, kept going. In verse 11, he specifically said, please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Now, this is very important. Jacob specifically used the word blessing here to make sure Esau understood what he was trying to do. If you remember, what was it that Jacob stole from Esau 20 years ago? Isaac's what? Isaac's blessing. Jacob here is being very specific. Don't you get what I'm trying to do, brother? I'm trying to say sorry for that specific sin I did in the past, which, by the way, is a good principle when you ask for forgiveness. Be very specific what you're asking forgiveness for. Take my blessings. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that for you. And then Esau, being the loving, caring brother that he is, realizes what Jacob meant in verse 11 and then took his offer. Said, okay, why? To show him, I get it. I'll receive your gifts. I forgive you. I mean, look at this. Jacob and Esau over and over and over again showing virtues of love and grace and humility. They look like the same. But, friends, take a closer look. There's actually a huge difference between these two people. One, you see Jacob throughout the whole conversation, if you look at Jacob's words throughout the whole conversation, over and over and over again, Jacob connects everything he does and he owns to God. But Esau, notice, didn't mention God even once. Look at the end of verse 5. Who does Jacob accredit for his possessions? God has graciously given it to me. And then verse 11, who does Jacob explain um, why does he have these possessions? Because God has dealt graciously with me. Because this is Jacob's story. God has proven his faithfulness and, and graced him over and over again, even when he didn't deserve it. And now, because of that, he has the courage to face Esau humbly because God has motivated him and encouraged him to move forward in his word. This is why he reconciled with Esau, because God has been gracious to me and, and driven me to this place. Jacob displayed a virtue that has everything to do with God. But take a look at Esau and how he speaks of his possession. God is nowhere in the picture. Verse 9 simply says, I have enough. I have enough. Now, indulge me a little bit. Allow me to show you how it is Esau actually acquired all his possessions. Why does he have enough? And I think by this we'll see the contrast between Esau's tribe and Jacob's tribe. And it's not a very virtuous story. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 22, we get information of what Esau has actually been doing this past 20 years while Jacob was away. I think it's on the screen. Deuteronomy 2, verse 22. For the people of Esau who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. What has Esau been doing for the past 20 years? Why does he have all that he has? He's been ravaging a people called the Horites. Destroyed their city and later named their city Seir. For 20 years, as Jacob was away, Esau has been pillaging people. That's why now he has his army that he has and all the possessions that he has. And then you go to Genesis 36. Esau's pillaging days didn't stop 
at Seir, at the Horites, his tribe, Esau's tribe, eventually grew so big and they named themselves the Edomites. And if you know anything about the Bible, the Edomites are not a very godly group of people. You read the book of Obadiah, the Edomites continued to pillage people for a long time. And even when Israel lost in war, they sent people to go to Israel, not to help them, not to aid them, but to capture the men and the women and the children that barely survived the war and sold them to slavery. That's Esau's tribe. That's the Edomites. In other words, their pillaging business exponentially grew into human trafficking. So when Esau here said, I have enough, it's not because he acquired it from the grace of God. He's been pillaging people, destroying cities. That's what God's trying to point out here. Do you see it? Two people who have the capacity to show good virtue, kindness, love, forgiveness. However, if you take a look closely at their hearts, their heart motivation is not the same. And two, if you look at their larger life directions, you actually see two fundamentally very different people. One, Jacob, shows virtue because he is motivated by faith in God's word and promise. God said, go back home, I'll make you this great nation, and he did. God said, confront Esau, trust me, he did. He was displaying all these virtues because his whole life is marked and has been marked by a movement towards God's future promise. Whereas Esau was able to show virtue as well. Yes, he forgave, he loved, he was gracious, but he was not motivated by faith in God's word. And in fact, neither is his life marked by God, nor is it moving towards God's promise. Do you have friends and family who are not Christians that has shown you love? Do you have people who are not a part of God's word, who doesn't care about God's word, who is not moving towards God's promise, but they have an amazing capacity for mercy and grace? Have you been forgiven by a non-Christian? I have, sincerely, over and over again. A parent, perhaps? A brother or a sister? who you know is not a Christian, but has a huge capacity for love and mercy and humility, this is who Esau represents. Now, why is that? Have you ever wondered? Why does people who aren't in Christ have the capacity to love? Well, Scripture says, because all mankind, we are all made in God's image. Yes, of course, because of sin, we're all broken images, but still, we're all broken images of a great and virtuous God. Crack mirrors we may be, but remnants of glory still shine through. Obscured and fractured as we are, the outline of the creator can still be seen. All mankind is God's image bearers, as broken as we may be, still have the capacity for love and humility, and that's what we see in Esau. That's what we see in people who are not in Christ, who can truly, truly love so what's the point? Why is God trying to show this contrast between uh, Esau and Jacob? Well, if in verses 1 to 3, God is encouraging his people by saying, I'm still with you. I know there's old sins that pop back up. I'll never let you go. I'm still with you. Although your entangling sins often make you look like the world, be comforted. I'm with you. Now, in verses 4 to 11, God is saying, but don't get lazy. Don't get lazy. You must grow and cultivate in your heart a kind of virtue that is distinct from the general virtue that even a broken world can produce. Do you see that? Jesus says in Luke 6, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. Those who are not in Christ can love. Those who are not in Christ and who have not accepted the gospel, even Esau, the pillager whose children became human traffickers, is able to show sincere forgiveness and mercy and kindness. And I'm afraid, Christians, that our point of reference for virtue has been the world. We look upon the kind of grace and mercy and kindness and generosity and humility that this broken world portrays, and we say, as long as I'm a bit better than that, I'm okay. As if our cultural standards that surround us is the baseline and benchmark for our holiness. Christian businessmen look at the ethical practices in their particular field and say, you know what? As long as I'm somewhat better than them, I'm fine. Christians who live in urban cities like Jakarta look at the materialism that exists here and says, you know what? As long as I'm a bit better than that, I'm good. We look at the world and how the world forgives. And we tell ourselves, as long as I'm generally a bit more forgiving than them, I'm all right. We look at how the world dates and says, as long as I'm somewhat more holy than my friends, I'm okay. You see, if in verses 1 to 3, God says, I know you have old sins that entangle you. I know they pop their head out a lot. And I know often causes you to look like the world. I'm still with you. I love you. I'm committed to you. I will never let you go. Now he transitions in verses 4 to 11, and he's saying, this doesn't mean you can get comfortable. If broken image bearers, who I have not graciously called unto myself by my word, if broken image bearers who could care less about me has the capacity to show virtue, how much more shall my people, whom I have called for myself, and who is bearers of my future promised blessing, portray it? Have a kind of love and, and forgive and sacrifice and confess and pursue reconciliation with an intensity that this world has no category for. Because it's come from God. Now, it's unbelievably hard to do that, is it? Oftentimes, we'd rather live like a broken world or be content with living just a little bit better than a broken world. Why is that? And how can we be encouraged to remain faithful unto the Lord and hang on to his commitment and love for us, but at the same time not get comfortable and push forward and move forward, live distinctively as his people during our time here on earth? Last point, a promise that gives God's people courage in this broken world. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? to make God and his holiness the standard of our life? Was it so hard to trust and align our lives to God's word? Well, friends, because if you do that, it'll make you feel vulnerable unto this world. We'll be vulnerable. What do I mean? Let's continue the story. Verse 12. After this interaction, Esau wanted Jacob to come with him to Seir. Esau said, come, come, Jacob, let us journey on our way. But Jacob said, no. Why? Because Jacob wanted to remain obedient to God and continue toward the place that God has told him to go, which is about six to eight kilometers westward from where they were, whereas Seir, where Esau wanted to take Jacob, was about 160, 165 kilometers south. So it's a different direction. He's saying, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to go to where he's told me. So they separated ways. God's people going towards God's promised land, trusting in God's world. And a worldly people going towards Seir, 
a conquered land they've previously ravished. Try to imagine the picture that the author is trying to paint for us, the readers here. Esau, powerful army, representing the kingdom of the world, a self-sufficient, strong, yet self-indulgent army, valiantly marching with earthly strength unto a life of self-attained security, dictated and directed by their own will. That's one image. Now look at Jacob with a weak tribe of shepherds <laughs> representing the kingdom of God, not self-reliant, God-reliant, not armed with earthly weapons, but with God's promise, not marching towards earthly comfort, but limping toward a greater promise, distinct from the world, directed by God's word, moving towards God's promised abode. You see how risky living like this is? You want to obey and uh, arrange your finances according to God and his glory and his kingdom come only to find uh, that, that actually it's going to cause you to be more financially vulnerable compared to many other people who do not handle money that way. You want to obey God and forgive others more than the world does only to find yourself more vulnerable because people are taking advantage of your grace thinking that your meekness equals weakness. You want to obey God and do, do, do not do the things that your friends do at school because you know that's not pleasing to God, only to find yourself becoming the vulnerable recipient of their ridicule. You want to follow God. It's going to make you vulnerable in this world. It's hard. It's so hard. And even though Jacob here told Esau he was going to separate from himself, no, Esau, I'm going I'm to go follow God, he was still scared when he did it. How do we know? Because he lied. <laughs> Jacob took a risk. He said, no, Esau, he risked offending Esau. No, I'm going I'm to follow God. This was a courageous move. But verse 14, he lied. He said, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock. He said, go ahead, Esau, I'll follow you uh, slowly at the back. But that was a lie. Because when Esau left, he never followed. Look at verse 16 to 17. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth, a place closer towards his destination. He lied. You see, an old sin coming up again. Jacob, this was the very thing that made this whole mess 20 years ago in the first place. He's trying to obey God. He's wanting to follow God. He's wanting to, but he realizes it makes him vulnerable. Old sins pop up. And Jacob's plight isn't over. God might have delivered him from Esau's army, but in front of him lies wicked Canaanites. Look at verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. Canaan, the city that he could see in front of him, before him, he can see it, wasn't a very godly city either. This represented future dangers that he's going to encounter. But it is in this land, in verse 20, he erected an altar and said, El Elohi Israel. In other words, he made himself distinct from the Canaanites. He made an altar to worship God, saying, I have a different king. And I will remain under this king, no matter the dangers and the vulnerabilities it might cause me as I journey through your lands. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. We look at the way God's called Jacob to live and don't you kind of think to yourself, I kind of want to be on Esau's tribe, <laughs> right? It's more secure. They, 
they're not vulnerable. Jacob's vulnerably risking his whole life to follow God. Why is that? Well, friends, because he's seen it. Seen what? He's seen God's sovereign mercy. He's seen God being committed to him, being gracious to him. God forgave him over and over again. God graciously gave him Rachel and Leah and 13 children, showing him, look, you will be this father of this promised kingdom. It will happen. Look at my faithfulness. I'm giving you these children. It'll happen. Be faithful to me. Keep following me. Keep trusting me. Keep going. But as God's people today may say, that's easy for Jacob. God's never shown me this kind of assurance and promise to where I can now have the faith to follow him and know that he'll never leave me alone and that I'll be delivered to his future kingdom. I can't risk myself like Esau. Friends, God has shown you that. What is the cross all about? You see, God graciously gave Jacob children to convince Jacob of his commitment to him and that this promised future redemption will happen. But on the cross, God gave you something infinitely more valuable. He gave you his only son to convince you that his promise of future redemption will be fulfilled. This is what this whole story is meant to point to in the first place. Think about it. Why do you think God was able to have patience on the likes of Jacob? You think God was just, uh, uh, didn't care when Jacob lied to Isaac? You think God just excused Jacob from robbing Esau? You think God wasn't filled with wrath when he humiliated Leah because of her looks? God was furious. So then why was God able to be patient with Jacob? Because he knew that one day he is going to place all that wrath upon himself when he dies on the cross for Jacob. Why do you think God can be patient with you and me? Despite of all our persistent sins, all our compromises, how can he bear with us and remain with us when we daily fall back into our old sins and, 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 and do treason against a king? Because the cross, he placed all that wrath upon himself when he climbed on that cross for you and I. What more do you ask of him? What else do you want him to do? We say, prove to me your word is worth following. Prove to me that you'll be patient with me even if I fail over and over again. Tell me you won't abandon me to the vulnerability I'm exposing myself to if I choose to arrange my life according to your word. What else do you want him to do? He's given us his son. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give him all things? What more do we require of him? All your sins have been placed on him. He won't abandon you. Trust him. Follow his word not to earn your own salvation, but because your salvation has already been purchased and sealed when your sovereign king died for you. What if my failures rip this gift away from me? It won't. You didn't earn it in the first place. How can you lose something you didn't earn? You didn't give it to yourself. God gave it to you. Have we learned nothing from Jacob's life? He'll never take it away. What if the world takes advantage of my vulnerability and do their worst to me? That won't take it away either. Because the world didn't give it to you. God did. And he will never take it away. 
So take courage. Let the cross strengthen your feeble knees. Limp you might. Old sins might come out. Yet direct your life and all of who you are towards his kingdom come. Live your life distinctively from this world. Forgive in a way this world cannot comprehend. Love in a way this world does not understand. Give in the way that this world finds strange. Have the kind of patience that is foreign to this world, even if it leaves you vulnerable. Because the source of it cannot be found in generic virtue and morality. The source of it is found in your heavenly Father, who's loved you and given up his only begotten Son for you. Strengthen your feeble knees. Live distinctively from this world. He will prove his promise true. Let me pray. Father, you have sent your Son to die for unworthy sinners as us. What more do we ask of you? You've proven yourself to us. If you have given us your Son, what can take us apart? Father, let nor sword, nor famine, nor things present, nor things future, nor dangers, nor peril, nor sickness, nor death, nor depression, nor anxieties, Take us away from you because it can't. Let us live our lives steady, assured upon the foundation of your promise, living a virtuous life more than what this world knows. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Take my life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. As I am pulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing Always only for my King Always only for my King You may be seated. Friends, communion is a special time for all those who have placed their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. In other words, for all of those who may still struggle with our old sins, for all of us who are limping, imperfectly as we are, weak as we are, to God's promise, holding on that His cross will prove itself to be true. And friends, if you're not yet a Christian, if you have not received Christ as Lord and Savior, if you're still searching 
you have questions, I'd love to talk to you about any of those that you may have. But I ask, as the scripture asks, to refrain yourselves from partaking of this bread and of this wine, because it is reserved for those who have placed their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. But also, I want to remind us that if you have received Christ as Lord and Savior, no matter how old you are, no matter what member, a uh, church member you belong to, come. This table is for you. Take it. It was broken, as, as the flesh broken, and the blood shed for your sins. Now, in a second, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the ushers to come up, uh, and I'm going to give us instructions of, of uh, what to do, uh, how we're going to take this element together. Uh, if you are, for some reason, uh, not drinking alcohol, uh, for personal convictions or health reasons, please raise your hand up for, for a long time so that Naomi uh, can come to you and bring the grape juice to you. Let us pray before we proceed in communion. Father, this time is special uh, because you have said that your spirit works not only through your word, but also through uh, the Lord's Supper when we are reminded over and over again of what you did on the cross for us. And Father, let this uh, visible uh, reality of an invisible truth that you in the flesh have died for us and you have taken upon yourself blood that it may be shed for us, help uh, make it realer in our hearts that we may continue and be encouraged to live as your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. for me let me hide myself in thee let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which float be a sin the double cure save from wrath and make me pure Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demand. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and Thou alone. Nothing in my hand, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress, helpless look to Thee for grace. Helpless look to Thee, Savior, or I die. 
Has everybody who wants the elements received one? If you haven't, please raise your hand. Um, and if we could also at this time, if somebody, uh, one of the ushers could ask the children volunteers and the children to come, I completely forgot again, uh, that they may also partake of this bread and of this wine. All right. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I invite us all at this time to partake of the bread. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite us all as one body to now partake of the cup. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this reminder of the cross. We thank you that we may look upon it and find in it a promise that is secure. Father, now as you hear our silent prayers of adoration individually before we sing our last song,